This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. A frequent topic discussed on this podcast has been the profound interest in rethinking the received wisdom on economics on the American right. You, our listeners, are undoubtedly aware of the received wisdom as consisting of some combination of reverence for the thought of Milton Friedman, Friedrich von Hayek, and other figures associated with the neoclassical school of thought. But whether attributable to longer-term structural changes in the American economy and how much globalization actually redounds to the benefit of America, or attributable to the rise of political figures on the right, such as Donald Trump and Josh Hawley, who have articulated critiques of the received wisdom that have resonated with voters, this interest in rethinking the received wisdom on economics is at the heart of many of the most fascinating debates animating the right. Today, we'll continue feeding that interest, which we think might also be yours, with the author of a book we're confident will soon be a bestseller. Sorab Amari is the author of Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It, from Penguin Random House. Sorab returns to the Anchoring Truths podcast for the second time. Since he's appeared on our podcast, he has since founded a new online magazine, Compact, a radical American journal. Before founding Compact, he spent nearly a decade at News Corp as op-ed editor of the New York Post and as a columnist and editor with the Wall Street Journal opinion pages in New York and London. Tyranny, Inc. is Sorab's third book. Also joining us on our podcast is Victoria Baker, one of our interns with the James Wilson Institute. We hope you enjoy the program. So, Rob Amari, so pleased to have you back on our Anchoring Truths podcast. It's an absolute delight to have you on talking about your new book, Tyranny, Inc. Thank you for having me. And it's a, an, a special point of pride and pleasure that this is uh, only your second repeating guest that I get to be that. So thank you. That's right. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're a young podcast, but we're, but we're growing. Um, your first book um, that you um, joined us for the podcast for was The Unbroken Thread. Now, that wasn't your first book. It was the first book you discussed on our podcast, of course. Um, that was uh, two years ago. Um, so you spent the last two years, right? You, you've just been a monk. You haven't been doing anything else over the last two years. You've just been writing this book, right? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish that were so true. What, what is your purpose in writing this book? And how is it different from your previous two books? Uh, well, the, the, my first feature length book, because I wrote a couple of, did a couple of shorter books before, but my first feature length book was my personal spiritual memoir about my conversion to Roman Catholicism. Um, but there is a more clear line between Tyranny Incorporated, the book that uh, we're discussing now, and the previous one that you had me on for called The Unbroken Thread. Um, the Unbroken Thread was, a broadly speaking, a, ca a case for um, tradition as a source source of um of guidance and restraint in our lives that paradoxically makes us free um so just to briefly uh weird to talk about one the podcast is about one book and I'm, I'm going back to my earlier one but you know for example i i brought up the case of sabbath restrictions um as although seemingly something that um restrains our range of choices 
in in effect actually serves to liberate us right so that mm -hmm. um you know we can be both interiorly more free one day we set aside for prayer for being with god and so on uh, but also i mean socially the institution of the sabbath protects one day for the worker for his family for his uh, religious practice and so on and but all, the difference is that that book was fundamentally a sort of individual case it was telling the individual reader here's why if you follow certain ancient truths and and try to sort of substantiate them in your lives it will improve your individual life tyranny inc the new book is um, fundamentally about how we organize our society and more specifically our political economy. What unites it with that book is, is that it shares this same structure that is that um, th this shared deep insight that I feel in my bo bones, which is that the absence of restraints, the absence of regulation paradoxically makes us less free. Um, and that regulation and restraint are friends rather than enemies of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, this is applied to, to the political economy, um, but there are other realms of life in this, this, in this that, in which this holds true as well. And so that's the connection uh, between the two books. And, and sorry, your question was two part of why did you write it? But I, let me know if I, if, if I should go on or, no, 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 no. Uh, I think I think our listeners would probably be interested in you um, delving a little more deeply into how this insight of yours differs from the traditional orthodoxy on the right, and then perhaps how it's even a little bit different than the orthodoxy of the new right. Right, right. Very good point. So I will say a little bit about the genesis of the book. Uh, this book was born on election night 2020. Um, it, it, when it wasn't still clear who had won, in fact, um, I personally went to bed, convinced that Donald Trump had had this in the bag. So I went to bed relatively early mm -hmm. and then we woke up to a completely unsettled <laughs> world right. of of um, of uncertainty and litigation and so forth about the outcome of the election. But even before the outcome was clear, uh, there was one thing that was clear, and that was that um, a growing ranks of uh, working class people were were voting for the Republican Party. That is that Trump having first initially in 2016 won the press presidency by attracting a decisive margin of white working class pe people in places like Pennsylvania and the upper Midwest uh, in 2020 had cons not only consolidated that uh, formation, but also added to it a kind of working a, a multiracial working class. Um, you know, uh, you know, a surprising number of African American men, mm -hmm. uh, Hispanics, and so forth, and uh, that buzzword that very night, multiracial working class, became a, a buzzword of the right, and specifically of the more populist new right. Yeah. And so I approached my editors at Random House, and I said, "Well, this kind of movement needs a kind of manifesto type book," and that's what I set out to write—a kind of a manifesto for 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 the new for the new working class rights a right where a lot of its voters are what you call downscale voters people who uh, work they, they toil tangibly you know they work with their hands and so forth compared to the democrats which increasingly dominate among people who manipulate information on screens for a living and but the problem was that as i set out to write this book i realized that the 
looking around me that the right didn't have um, a good sense of what was blocking working class flourishing in 21st century United States. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, there was a kind of cultural opposition to big business having to do with big business pushing um, certain kind culture, kinds of cultural agendas that, by the way, that I don't like either, mm -hmm. but that it's often stopped there. It was sort of like um, it was solely focused on so-called woke capital, uh, losing sight of the sort of material roots of what had made work, woke capital such a powerful force in our lives mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, and those pathologies of working class and middle, lower middle class America, which the 2016 election brought to our focus, you know, sort of the um, opioid addiction, the failures of family formation, you know, historical um, stagnation in, way, in real wages going back now like two generations. So all those frustrations that exploded in, in the Trump election, 2016 and 2020, um, th there wasn't a really sort of meaty diagnosis of it from a material point of view. It was mm. all at the level of culture. Now, culture is its own thing. It has its own inner integrity, but there is a, there is a nexus between the cultural and the material. That yeah. is the way the, the, the ideologies that gain prominence um, often do align with material realities, about, with class structure, etc. So as I did more and more, I decided that you know, what, what was needed wasn't so much a book that is, you know, a manifesto, which would be putting the cart before the horse, but rather a kind of tour of our political economy as people on the lower rungs of it experience it. Mm -hmm. And um, then to say, why is it that they experience it so miserably? Um, what is the sort of source of this loss of power that's happened over the past two generations? Um, and then you can begin to say, what should be done rather than uh, so that's the book that I end up writing. It's much more of a reportorial book. Uh, the first half of the book is devoted to sort of giving you a first person tour of what the economy is like at various places or various realms um, in the workplace, in the scheduling of a worker, mm -hmm. in the employment agreement or contract, in these privatized arbitration chambers that increasingly replace um, you know, courtroom, traditional courtroom justice for workers in the workings of Wall Street and how it's uh, corroding the real economy, the real economy where we manufacture goods and services that are sort of tangibly useful to people or used to. Um, in the process of corporate bankruptcy, in um, the pension fund, et cetera. It's first half of the book and then in the second half, I do my more like, uh, prescriptive. I give a history of where we got here, a history of the political economy of the United States. Uh, it's very divided into these kind of roughly three stages. Um, you know, the uh, 19th century before the sort of reforms of the New Deal, then mm -hmm. the New Deal order, and then the post-New Deal neoliberal order. Um, how it inter so that's how it intersects with the right. You know, I, I'm often classed as being part of the new right. And I welcome that in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm socially conservative, but I think um, I, I'm economically populist. Um, some call me economically left and I don't, I don't even shy away from that per se. Uh, but I, but as a member of the new right or whatever, an intellectual associated with the new right, um, 
I'm critical of it in this book insofar as it doesn't, you know, do enough sort of serious work on, on the political economy. And I try to sort of, I, I try to fill that lacuna, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I think that there's a lot <laughs> in the last two years, which you can point to, to show that um, corporate coercion <clears throat> is as much, if not more of a pressing matter that can be addressed through the prudential use of state power, which is something that folks on the new right will take as take as a hallmark. Um, but nevertheless, there is still this kind of aversion. And I think that in, in many ways, it's a, it's a healthy aversion. It comes from, I think, the Anglo-American tradition um, to uh, 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 equate corporate power um, with state power. And yet in your book, you bring up, you know, case study after case study that show that corporate power can influence uh, one's life in even vaster ways um, than, than, than state power might. And you bring up the case of Lisa uh, Renee in the introduction, you know, who's doing something that I would argue 99% of people who have been given uh, you know, a, a cell phone um, for, for work um, do, which is they use that corporate cell phone to check maybe their own email, or they, they, they go on Google and, and check something like recipe for dinner because maybe they have two cell phones or maybe they have, um, you know, uh, only one phone, uh, you know, handy, which is a pretty innocuous thing. But what has our corporate, um, uh, you know, culture done? It's compressed our life into nothing but a constant stream of, uh, sorry, it's compressed our life into, you know, one one without boundaries. So we have, you know, corporate life and work life. But in this instance, because, you know, uh, Ms. Renee, you know, didn't, you know, uh, only search for her own things on her own, dev- on, on her own device. The corporate uh, entity, I, I can't remember in the book which one it was, was yeah. monitoring exactly what she was, you know, searching. It didn't just sort of s- silo it off as well. We have a worker who's just checking her, her email. No, they were monitoring her email. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, in that way, you know, we have a, uh, you know, a culture now in which um, there can be uh uh, because of this idea of you know consent, um, we have far more of an ability for you know corporations to know more about each of us um, uh, and to be able to act on that information. And so you know maybe this uh, uh, is 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 a way that you know the yeah, you know very sensible Anglo-American you know tradition um, which does separate corporate power from state power. Uh, maybe it needs a little bit of. Uh, kind of an updating for um, what we're uh, encountering more and more. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I I would argue that it may not even be an upgrade, uh, but maybe a recovery um, because what I mean by that is, and this is not really discussed in my book, I, I, I can never resist because the book is written and I'm working on my next book project and I'm, I'm my headspace is somewhere else. So I'll get to that sort of book related answer, the current book related answer, but let me give you a future book related answer, which is that, um, you know, in, in the 19th century, in the Repub- in the early Republic, um, corporations were much more seen as, first of all, much more as creatures of the state of creatures of, of the law and the state, and therefore um, subject to sort of per- the prerogatives of uh, right, the right. common good or of the state in the sense that the, the United States used to issue far fewer corporate charters and these state corporate charters had to sort of 
you know, anyone can incorporate anything for the sole purpose of making profit is actually a relatively new thing. It, it comes out of the Jacksonian era. In a way, the Jacksonians were trying to combat what they saw as you know, monopolies that were created by these limited charters, and it was so hard for new, newcomers to compete with them. Um, but, but what they gave us, unfortunately, and the downside is um, a corporation whose um, connection to the, to the common good, to our common life together is pretty, even in, in our own public discussion of it is, is now attenuated and sort of lost that like, why do we have this particular form called the corporate form? It was initially meant to serve a specific public interest and not just privatize profiteering and shielding, you know, the profiteers from liability or what, personal liability, what have you. Um, so it, I think it may not even be, uh, you know, our task may not be a new update on the Anglo-American tradition, but of a, of a recovery of an of, of what, an older, older ways of thinking about the corporate form. But now returning to Tyranny Inc., I mean, the whole idea of Tyranny Inc. is that precisely because, uh, you know, in, in our public discussion, um, in our laws, increasingly, we're used to thinking of coercion as what government does. Coercion is either what tyrannical governments, you know, in the developing world do to their, you know, benighted poor citizens, or it's what our own government does, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the tax man or the, you know, guy who gives you a ticket for double parking your car in a city, that's what coercion is. And usually that and it's a very in a very, very limited part of our lives in which we might subject ourselves to coercion. But then everywhere else, especially in the private economy or the private zone, is where we're free of coercion. Everything is regulated by consent. And the whole purpose is of this book, Tyranny Inc., is to show the degree to which that private zone is actually shot through with coercion, mm -hmm. only it's coercion that's not centrally meted out by, you know, a, a government, but rather by myriad um, private actors, most notably employers. So, you know, like, for example, if, 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 if the, um, you know, uh, if the Egyptian government, you know, surveilled its citizens, minute typing, whatever they type on their computers, uh, we would say, well, that's very coercive and no wonder it's Egypt. Or if our own government did it, and it does, you know, it's like, well, that's the CIA. Has it overstepped its boundaries? It's not supposed to spy on Americans. We are very alert to that. But then, you know, our employers routinely now do that, kind, subject us to that sort of very minute uh, coercion. And precisely because in our public speaking about this and thinking about this, we've cordoned off the private as a place that's supposedly free of coercion. We don't have defenses against it. We don't have, um, it's not subject to the same kind of democratic give and take or other public kind of public pressure and counter pressure that we apply to our public lives. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the, the purpose of the book is, and it's a, in a way it's addressed to a conservative audience to say, yeah. look, you're right to be alert to unjust coercion. Coercion is, you know, but coercion is inevitable in human affairs. And so you have to notice it when it happens in the private sector and be equally alert to it. Now, luckily over the past couple of years, especially with episodes like the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story by big tech, conservatives have become somewhat more alert to this, but the only cases that we kind of notice are these big cultural war incidents like the Hunter laptop story, which I was involved in. I was at the yes, New York Post when it happened. But, but there are much more sort of invisible mundane ways 
in which, uh, you know, broadly speaking, assetless Americans or workers, whatever you want to call it, are subjected to private coercion, but it doesn't rise to our level of attention, except very rarely. Mm -hmm. You know, your book also um, has an interesting parallel with uh, a book that was written about, you know, coercion that, uh, you know, is done um, uh, uh, at sometimes like the state level um, or how, sorry, at the federal level and how the federal government can coerce the states um, mm -hmm. through that same mechanism, which you described, which was, um, you know, playing on the state's ability to, um, you know, consent to the kind of coercion, just like um, how, you know, in, for example, in, in the abstract, a worker, you know, consents to working with a company. Well, then the worker must then subject himself or herself to all of these kinds of violations. In the same way, this is a book written by Philip Hamburger called Purchasing Submission, how states have ceded away, you know, their authority to the federal government um, because of how the federal government's bribed them in a lot of ways to do it, um, you know, to uh, to adopt, uh, you know, federal mandates and uh, uh, to adopt, um, you know, f uh, the federal federal policy through, uh, through spending. And, you know, these these sums of money that the that the feds offer uh, to the states are, are such that it rises to the level of, uh, you know, being um, uh, uh, misconduct for, you know, a state not to accept um, funding for its citizens um, from the federal government. Um, but again, this is all predicated on the idea that um, there is, you know, some wet level of, you know, opt out and, and it's not as overt a form of coercion. Um, but I think what your book does is it shows that, you know, there is this um, tremendous tug that may not be at the point of a gun, but there are plenty of other ways that your life will be impacted, you know, to its extreme detriment if you aren't going along with this kind of coercion. Right. Yeah. I mean, and 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 in many cases, uh, you know, consent here becomes a pretty uh, thin sort of fictitious tissue. Right. Um, I mean, one one obvious example to go back to our previous question is you know, the terms of service that you um, typically cons consent to, I, I use, you know, scare quotes, when you sign up for these services that the agreements are, you know, the length of Tolstoy novels, and, <laughs> and no one reads them. And yet, in order to, you know, participate in our public, and, and by the way, they're non negotiable, they're take it or leave it. Uh, but yet, in order to participate in our public square, where the democratic public square actually transpires where it happens, you have to agree to it. And you're suddenly subject to, you know, this body of pseudo law. That's the only way to describe it. Pseudo law that is nevertheless really uh, is powerful, is very coercive. And the people who are on the enforcement of end of it are not democratically accountable. They're not uh, elected. They're, you know, it's just a sort of Silicon Valley oligarchs and they're sort of, uh, technocratic managers were all privately employed so you have no sort of sense of recourse against them um but yeah i mean but much more mundanely right coming down to the level of ordinary life you know that it's just the employment agreement typically you know in in sort of libertarian or neoclassical economic theory there's this idea that the, the employment agreement is um you know just fundamentally structured by consent and that consent ultimately flows from the ability of both parties to walk away with each from each other is a sort of symmetry of being able to exit the relationship um or it, 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 it's not the, the the problem is that that's not how 
especially in conditions of uh, oligopoly, right? In, the, in, mm -hmm. mar in most markets, there's only a, a very few firms that dominate, right? So, right, so for right. example, Amazon dominates 50, 60% of the retail market. Um, you as the employee are one of thousands going up against one seller and therefore yeah. your strength is really, really diminished. So that when you are you know, given an employment agreement, by the way, typically you've just been offered the job in an email or something, you've maybe changed your city, you've maybe uh, you know, moved your kids, leased a new car, leased a new apartment, whatever. And then when you show up, you're handed that stack of papers to, to sign. Um, now, in again, in libertarian theory and abstract theory, you're free at any point to, to try to negotiate the terms. No one does. The vast, vast majority of people uh, sign was put in front of them precisely because of that disparity in bargaining power and just power disparity in general between the two parties. Um, and again, libertarian theory has this idea that the contract is constantly renegotiated and that's okay. So for example, one example I give is the use of, of commercial arbitration in the workplace. Commercial arbitration was something that we've had in this country for many, for many for centuries actually, but it became codified as something the federal courts would enforce after the 1925 Federal Arbitration Act. But it was supposed to be, uh, you know, emphatically in the minds of the law's framers and the people who advocated for it, it was emphatically supposed to be uh, something to be used between merchants of relatively equal bargaining power. And over many decades, the Supreme Court, and I have to say it's mostly right of center justices, gradually opened up the Federal Arbitration Act and applied it in the workplace context where it wasn't supposed to be applied. Um, now we could get into how how unjust the arbitration system itself can be for when it when there's that kind of a power disparity, but the, the more interesting point is that often, for example, a worker will receive an email, you know, they've been working for this company for three years, uh, they're locked into this job, and they get an email saying, well, if you show up to work the following day, you agree to arbitrate all your disputes. Again, according to libertarian theory, you know, uh, at that point, the worker is free to renegotiate. In reality, you show up to work the next day, because otherwise you can't pay your bills, and you're, this is your job, right? So you don't have, the, so the idea that you consented now to arbitration, is pretty, pretty tenuous, right, in the real world. But it's a kind of fiction that appeals to a certain kind of libertarian uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, which is why we have the regime that we have. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, and this is just basic. I'm affirming your point. Yeah. So at this point, many listeners uh, might be thinking, um, wait, didn't we reform how the private sphere, sphere operated um, after the excesses of sort of the Gilded Age? Mm -hmm. um, and what went wrong there? Um, and what's led us to this flashpoint? Um, and how do we get from the reforms of the 20th century to today? Yep, so, um, you know, these, uh, it's right to call them as excesses, uh, you know, by the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, famously, the Supreme Court was striking down any effort on, on the part of public authorities to improve the condition of workers through legislation for, you know, most famously in the case of Baker's hours being limited to 60 hours in, in New York State, work weeks being limited to 60 hours in New York, uh, which the, the court struck down in Lochner and the name the Lochner Court came about. Um, 
but then you know the 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 depression happened and and uh you know there was like this sense of social instability that was going along with the the uh, the, the rising kind of class uh, anger and violence that was taking place courts wouldn't would uphold for example yellow dog contracts which meant that uh you know, in in order to be employed, you could be required to not be part of a labor union, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, then came FDR and the New Deal and uh, the, you know, fundamental premise of the New Deal was that, that the economy wouldn't work even for the asset owning class unless workers were able to mount countervailing power against employers. So the most kind of the, the signature element of the New Deal was the Wagner Act, which whose premise is to encourage collective bargaining. Now, it wasn't just that, um, you know, we would allow collective bargaining, but the Wagner Act Congress says the goal of Congress, the goal of the US government is to encourage collective bargaining in recognition of the fact that um, in recognition of the fact that you know the workplace is this place of dr dramatic power disparities uh, between employers and employees, um, and by artificially and brutally keeping down, uh, keeping a low ceiling on union density, which is the share of workers that belong to labor unions, uh, ultimately you had workers who couldn't afford the goods that they were producing, and that was led to a demand crisis, and therefore it required. Um, a dramatic response. And so we got a, an entirely new uh, order, which you could call the New Deal order. Um, uh, the centerpiece of which, again, to me, was the, was the Wagner Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, Wagner Act um, is supposed to help workers in unionized industries, Fair Labor Standards Act, which creates the federal minimum wage and overtime protections, applies mostly to uh, you know non-union employees, but they kind of work hand in hand to mm -hmm make it easier for people to unionize so that by the by the post-war era union membership peaked at 33 percent in the in the in the private economy um so what went wrong is um, frankly the new deal order was was undone uh it was undone initially as often things are by the work of a like a small group of intellectuals who are quite fringe i'm talking about the sort of the, the proto neoliberals and neoliberals, people like von Mises and uh, Milton Friedman, uh, who uh, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s were considered sort of completely cranky, you know, unserious fringe people, uh, corporate leaders. And the, the New Deal model wasn't just something that uh, the left or, or progressives upheld. It was something that corporate leaders thought this is how you run business and you get peace with with workers, you get government and work and labor and um, capital working together to coordinate uh, various things to the benefit of the common good, etc. And now in the book, I really celebrate this New Deal order that came about. And it was upheld again, not just by the left, not just by even corporate leaders, but even by the right, right? So that Eisenhower, uh, the Republican Party in that sort of Eisenhower Nixon tradition upheld the New Deal order to the point that Nixon competed very sort of robustly and successfully for the labor vote. Um, it was not seen, labor was not yet seen as this kind of purely the domain of, of the left. So what, uh, but, but so Rob, what do you say to the argument that it was the kind of the, the relative material prosperity of the United States coming out of World War II compared to Europe? that really laid yeah. the foundations for 
you know, broader prosperity as opposed to, you know, uh, sort of a corporate embrace of the New Deal that, you know, gave way to, you know, middle class, pro- uh, middle class prosperity. Yeah, I mean, so the the, the argument typically is that, um, you know, that was an era in which the United States enjoyed such, such supremacy that it could afford to be so generous with workers and so forth. I would just say that, um, you know, the the U.S. economy in that sort of the pre-New Deal era was also a pretty robust economy, right? It was uh, it was it was a robust economy, and yet um, you know, and it was at the envy of the world, and it had in or, already, although it wasn't like plugged into to globalized markets the way it was in the post-war era. It was it was you know a force to be reckoned with, um, and yet you know it, the conditions were. Uh, were quite different. So what 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 made the what made the difference? Uh, you know that the factor that's there is is high union density. Or you could just say instead of saying high union density, you can just say um, collective bargaining power um, was at a different place. So the the real question is, are are wa- are wages really the product of you know? Um, <clears throat> are really an index of where supply and demand demand meet and the sort of that in the wage of an in, uh, you know the, the the wage of an individual worker is like minutely pegged to his or her productivity i think that applies to a certain like narrow category of i don't know like someone who flips hamburgers uh you know and so you can just precisely count like how many hamburgers per hour or whatever so marginal productivity of the worker um, but in any other number, any number of other industries, it becomes so much more w- vague, like how, <laughs> you know, how to how to how to peg wages to productivity to marginal productivity that tells you that what, what really wages are an index of relative bargaining power. And so when relative bargaining power goes up, wages go up as well. Well, you had uh, a personal I mean, you had a personal experience with this uh, that, you know, we're recording this uh, a little before yeah. the release of Sorab's uh, book, um, but it's uh, still um, not too far away from a recent piece that he wrote in Compact Magazine, uh, which he's the editor-in-chief of, uh, in which he spent a day on a back lot as a movie extra, and he got to see up close, because Sorab, you're not a member of SAG or any of the <laughs> actors' unions, but you got to see up close the difference between the treatment of the folks in the union and then the extras like you and was it your wife and your son or was it just you it was just me and a friend okay just Uh, you and a friend so you got to see very up close what the difference in bargaining power was so can you give us a yeah absolutely personally um you know saw this as we're recording this the screen actors guild is on strike um i don't know if that'll be the case a month you know whenever this podcast publishes but um i was inspired to write this piece because of the SAG strike with this experience that happened in the spring, spring of 2023. And, um, you know, I have, I, I have a friend who does what's called background acting, who's being a movie extra, not as a job, you know, this person has their own job, um, but just as a hobby. And so I went along and, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, first of all, it was a reminder of, you know, those of us who are salaried employees, it doesn't mean that we aren't necessarily, we are not subject to coercion or exploitation in the workplace. We are, but it's something else to be subjected to sort of highly regimented wage labor. That's what I remember from like my high school and college jobs. And then I went to the professional class and you know, c- conditions are different. You might even work 
quite a lot, but it's not the same as that kind of labor. And here I was for the first time in maybe two decades or decade and a half where I am, you know, uh, disciplined in the workplace in that way. So it's a scene, it's a scene of a sort of gala being recorded. And so there has to be like 200 people who are extras. We're all pretending to be, you know, posh attendees at this, at this gala. And uh, you're like, oh, well, a scene like that, it's only supposed to be like two minutes in the show. How long could it possibly take to record this? It ended up being like 13 hours, 12 and a half hours. And, you know, at every stage, uh, you know, when it was time lunch time, the bosses, you know, the assistant directors would say, oh, if you're our SAG friends, being union members, you're going to this like relatively decent restaurant. If you're non-union, you know, you're going to a community center, they'd rent it out and here's some like soggy sandwiches. Or they'd say, uh, you know, it's break time for our SAG friends, but you know, the rest of you, we'd ask that you please continue to work. Um, so you, you just very tangibly see the benefits of collective action, um, which, you know, in situations in which there are, very, again, when there are very few employers going up against many, sorry, when there are many employees going up of a, a relatively few number of employers, it's buyers of labor, um, that bargaining power on the side of the of the sellers of labor is pretty diminished. So the only way to sort of try to like equal uh, equalize the the imbalance is through collective action. And sure enough, I saw that it's like wow, like if you're union, you get you know, better treatment. It doesn't mean like the job is any easier. You're still standing around for hours and hours. It's physically grueling, but you know, it ameliorates the kind of pressure, like in the stresses that the job imposes on, on the individual. And yet in the book, you distinguish between public unions and private unions, public sector unions and, and private sector unions. Yeah. I mean, I, I mostly focus on the, on the private economy in general, I mean, because the focus of the book is, is, um, you know, coercion in the private economy. So um, that doesn't mean you know, that I'm categorically opposed to the existence of public sector unions, but I do think you know, conservatives have a point when they try to say, well, here the employer is the public, it's the taxpayer that creates some sensitivities. Um, you know, but on the other hand, there are situations in which a public employer um, contracts out, let's say elder care, yeah, or garbage collection to a private company who acts like any other private company in sort of totally trying to exploit as much as they can and to be, you know, they would use as much of the kind of unjust coercion that this book is about. Um, and in that, in those cases, often, you know, the SEIU, is it a public sector union representing those workers? Is it a private sector union? It's a little, becomes a little bit murkier and I'm not so quite ready to say, therefore all pu public sector unions are, are bad and should be, uh, you know, cast aside. Mm -hmm. I think Victoria is going to, uh, have us take a step back with a, a broader question. Let's yeah. Um, so in your book, you mention um, sort of this idea of liberty as a sort of, you call it a freestanding abstraction. Mm -hmm. um, and could you just elaborate? On yeah, yeah. So, so I'm talking here, I'm talking about political, specifically political or social freedom, because, you know, I adhere to um, the classical definition of freedom, right? And that's the one that's defended in the, the Unbroken Thread, my previous book, mm -hmm. which is that you know, far from thinking of, of freedom or liberty as the absence of restraints, um, that's not the case, right? The, like, uh, if I give in to all my basest, most 
evil drives, I do not thereby become more free. I actually become uh, less free. I become, you know, a slave to sin, as the gospel would put it. Um, so that's one. But there is also this question of, you know, political rights or political liberty. And we sometimes have this idea that like, you know, well, we just have a situation in which there are there is just a set of equal rights, uh, abstractly distributed in, in equal measure among the um, public just by virtue of being a human being, you're a citizen, you have XYZ right. Of course, that's what I try to tackle is that that's, that's not how um, freedom works in a political economic context. That, so what I mean by that to give to make that concrete. Um, NBC News and I, Saurabh Amari, the individual, both have, uh, you know, free speech, right? We have free speech rights. But NBC can can broadcast its views, its its shareholders and editors can broadcast their views on public policy issues to many millions of people. Whereas I might only have now imagine I'm not a sort of public figure. I'm just I'm just a mom. Let's say pretend I'm you know whatever. I'm just a a single mom, you know, or I'm a you know I'm just a a, a janitor at a school. You know. I only have my two hundred friends on Facebook. You know, that's who I get to. So although there's this sort of abstract equality of free speech rights in practice, um, the, 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 the disparity in power translates into a disparity in freedom. I can only reach, reach my 200 friends. And oh, by the way, you know, because Facebook itself is controlled by, you know, uh, uh, another company that and it can wield this power of di di depriving me of my free speech rights on its platform when I say something that it considers quote unquote disinformation, which by the way, the standards constantly shift of what counts as disinformation or not, as we saw over the course of the pandemic. So that's just it is that, that, that like the, the, the disparities in, in the distribution of power, lopsided distributions of power translate into lopsided distributions of, of political liberty. That's all. I think it's a, it's it's it almost is a banal point. Yeah, but you're but I think your your you know sort of dual point that you make is that consent doesn't provide the ground of its own justification, just like liberty doesn't provide the ground of its own justification, right? Like the the whole mm -hmm. idea is you are making an argument that human flourishing, eudaimonia, that is the goal of liberty. That's the goal. Like you are consenting to excellence consenting or sorry you, you it's it's freedom for excellence yeah or, or in, you know in the case of a again to bring it down to the level of political economy you know <clears throat> freedom for a relatively decent stable life <laughs> you know? and then and then you have you have the sort of higher freedoms but at the level of political what what political economy can provide right uh, political economy well-structured can provide freedom for a relatively decent and stable life. And that can be the foundation for deeper forms of human flourishing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where I have a relatively decent and stable life. Therefore, I can form a family and I can fulfill my vocation as a man, as a father, or I can, um, you know, pro provide for my family. We can go to church. We have we have that restfulness where we can, you know, attend synagogue on Saturday, blah, 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 blah. And then you have a flourishing uh, community. So I don't expect too much of, of political economy. So I'm not a utopian here. Um, political economy can't, you know, scratch the 
deepest itches of the soul. And anyone who thought about thought that way is, is mistaken. But it can provide and should provide, I think, in a in a just frame. It should it can provide conditions for a relatively decent, stable life for for people. You know, again, there's going to be variations. We're not talking about full socialism here or anything like that. There's uh, people have different skill levels, mm-hmm. um, but I think there is an interest. There's a there's an inimical relationship between the aspiration for a relatively decent, stable life for most people, and the idea of maximal abstract freedom for all market actors. Because in practice, given the lopsided distribution of power, that ends up the the lopsided distribution of power ends up in uh, you know profoundly diminishing the ability of a lot of ordinary people to reach again what was the standard the standard was relatively decent stable life yeah and i I just remember you know reading hadley arcus's intellectual biography of justice george sutherland you know he brings up these cases from the early 20th century in which Mm. we are getting some genuine clashes between uh, you know, you well. I mean, you 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 bring up the Lochner era. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny. I think we're the only podcast in which the last like multiple recordings have has brought <laughs> have brought up the Lochner case, which is probably uh, 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 a warning sign that maybe we are um, uh, a niche, maybe like, a little too narrow a niche. But uh, nevertheless, we're we're uh, we're I guess we're filling a need uh, for for discourse on this. So. Um, uh, you know, if you if you, if you if you read that book of of uh, Professor Arcus's, you know, you read about these cases in which we had you know family businesses, really nothing more than like a mom and pop, uh, going up against you know massive unions in 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 some case. And so, I guess my question to you is: Is your concern corporate power in the twenty first century compared to waning worker power? And can you see perhaps a future in which you might have? Uh, weaker corporate power and stronger unions um, be in need of a rebalancing in the kind of ways that you've just discussed? That's a really good question. You know, a question that you might pose to me is, okay, if if corporate power, you know, as such is as, as corrosive as you describe it in the book, and there is the lopsided distribution of income and power sets society's classes at odds with each other. Why don't we then pursue the cause of class struggle, right? And just have a society and why shouldn't the ideal be, you know, pushing this dynamic to the point where, um, you know, all distinctions of class are abolished, right? And so we have a society in which you just have totally equal distribution of income and blah 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 right what, no, in no, other words no, well, i don't know if I, i'm no, not saying i'm not, not saying not you're asking that. that but i i'm i'm, I'm taking okay, your okay, question sure. all the way and i'll answer why i disagree with that which is why i'm not i don't consider myself any sort of a socialist so the lodestar for me in terms of thinking about these questions ultimately is is frankly catholic social teaching okay. uh, which the modern catholic social teaching begins with uh begins with uh, Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum, Capital and Labor, and goes through, including Centesimus Annus, the John Paul II teaching, and a lot of Pope Francis' teaching. Catholic social teaching 
and the kind of political tra the economic tradition that I laid out, both which is secular, both recognize that there is uh, modernity and the industrial revolution create a kind of class um, structure. All societies have class structures, but a class structure that is both kind of more simple and more brutal. There's like a na relatively narrow class of the asset less and a larger class of uh, uh, sorry, a narrow class of the asset rich and a larger class of the asset less, whose interests are often inimical. But what social caste social teaching strives for is not the destruction of one class by the other, but rather a kind of class compromise for the common good of the whole. And so it recognizes that, like, you know, human beings have different abilities, the distribution of wealth across generations, even if you strive to try to minimize its harmful effects is going to be unequal. But what can we do to build a society in which, uh, you know, the, the uh, social order as a whole is ordered to the common good, in which, um, you know, the exploitation that can be especially pronounced in kind of post-industrial revolution political economies is uh, diminished or ameliorated in which families can flourish, in which workers can flourish. So the ultimate goal here is, is a kind of class compromise rather than class warfare. It recognizes that there is class antagonism, but it doesn't go then to say, therefore, let's push class antagonism all the way. And so to answer your question, which is sort of not not this the question that I just answered, but somewhere in the middle. So to, to go back to your question, um, I think that there is, in theory, a possibility of a situation coming about in which, um, you know, the asset less many uh, are oppressing the asset rich few to a degree that is unjust. I think if you come from a Catholic social teaching frame, you admit the possibility of that. Um, it seems unlikely to me, given the balance of power between the two under current conditions, but potentially there is a possibility. And if that possibility comes about, then of course you would have to say, well, one now it's the other class oppressing the other. Uh, so one class oppressing the other, it's a sort of reverse and that's something that should be ameliorated. It's possible in theory. I think the likelihood of it in you know ever coming about is, is 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 pretty low but um you know it, it, you know if, if you're a socialist you think that's great that that's how you get the dictatorship of the proletariat but if your frame is 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 catholic uh social teaching if the aim is um class compromise rather than class war mm -hmm. then yeah you have to admit that possibility and potentially be prepared to act against it i just don't think it's coming about anytime soon and that, I think that's that's completely fair. And it you know kind of gets to that like question that uh, we were hitting at earlier, which was, you know, we have do we have, you know, truly rights bearing entities at stake? We have individuals with rights. Uh, we also have corporate rights. Um, and so I know sometimes we might get a little, as Marianne Glenda would say, like wrapped up in rights talk. Um, but mm -hmm. as far as comparing, um, you know, clashes uh, goes, I think you can't hold out on principle the possibility that mm -hmm. you could have a situation where um the uh stakes are or sorry not the stakes um the um the concerns are are reversed so, reversed yeah. yeah 
And so I think we're going to let, let Victoria, um, you know, guide us towards the uh, the conclusion of our of our podcast um, here. But I'm sure um, we'll we'll still have uh, plenty more to discuss. Yeah. Um, so, are you like optimistic um, that your broader argument about sort of utilizing um, state power to sort of vindicate worker power uh, will be embraced by the right in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, several answers to that. One is I see hopeful signs um, in the constellation of the what's called the new right or the new Republican Party, whatever you, label you want to use. Um, there are definitely individuals who are quite visionary and who are prepared to break with the party's orthodoxies, which are relatively recent orthodoxies, as I said, the um, you know, as recently as the Nixon era, uh, the, the Republican Party had a quite different relationship with with workers and with unions. And so they're prepared to, you know, rethink certain things that have been treated as, you know, ironclad, um, ironclad dogmas when in fact they're relatively recent developments. So I'm thinking, I mean, I'm thinking of like Senator Josh Hawley, Senator jo uh, J.D. Vance, uh, Senator Marco Rubio, and Rubio gave a speech at Catholic University not too long ago, I think it was pre-pandemic, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, in which he invoked Leonine teaching. Um, he's written a book now that I'm reading that I think is very sophisticated on, on these issues. And I think he comes from this idea of, he's come around to this idea of a class compromise model. I don't know, frankly, to what extent it's like directly Catholic inspired or, uh, well, it is, it seems to be insofar yeah. as he no, cites I, I Leo. I think it is, I think it is. Um, you know, Senator Hawley uh, was pretty vocal when the, there was a, a, a rail worker strike in which actually the Biden administration, uh, you know, ironically ended up on the side of the railroads, um, uh, whereas uh, several Republicans actually voted um, not to, voted against having Congress sort of uh, dictate the workers back to work. Um, I, I, you know, Senator Vance is partnering up with Senator Liz Warren of Massachusetts to um, work on sort of exe banking executives and their abuses. So there's the sort of ferment happening. Um, I th what I think didn't work about the last six, eight years as a project that I devoted myself to was this idea that, okay, we take the Republican Party and we realign it for workers and we use it to bash the left. Um, or potentially on the other side, there was a sort of similar Bernieite idea that, like, you know, I think that in the in the American tradition, things always happen happen when a kind of consensus forms in the middle. And so, where I see the greatest hope is in those areas where you see Holly lining up with Sanders, you know, Vance partnering with uh, Liz Warren. There you begin, and even you know, working with the Biden administration on things like industrial policy. It's that kind of working in the middle that the American tradition, somehow the system we've inherited uh, prizes that or privileges that kind of political action. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. And so that's where I see uh, things going. Um, it's also notable that, you know, um, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, gave this speech 
couple of months ago in which he he said, you know, the Washington consensus is over. The Washington consensus is a sort of shorthand for a neoliberal model of, you know, total freedom of goods, movement and services, corporate led globalization. Uh, you know, the pandemic sort of revealed the limits of that in a, in a dip, very painful way where we saw, oh, you know, supply lines or supply chains are stretched so thin that under the slightest pressure, they snap. Uh, oh, shoot, the United States doesn't manufacture the basic components of its own drugs. Why, why are we dependent on China for drugs? Uh, oh, we don't, we can't manufacture, you know, personal protective equipment. Not, I'm saying, I'm not saying masks were necessarily good or something, but the fact that the U.S. had given up so much manufacturing, which is part of the loss of worker power in this country, has come under question. So that the ideas that are advanced in my book, um, you know, are kind of becoming conventional wisdom in the editorial page of like the Financial Times, which is not where you normally would expect them to be getting this kind of a reception. Um, so on the elite level, interesting things are happening. Uh, on the but from the ground up level or the bottom up level, uh, there's also a great deal of labor ferment in the country that's taking place right now. As we said, while we're recording, there's Screen Actors Guild, but there's been a number of uh, movements to either organize workers who are previously unorganized or to you know renegotiate contracts and so forth. And um, you know that's that's going very. In, in other words, it's it's very. Um, ferocious it seems uh, but however it is not nearly at the level of where things were let's say in the 1930s right the the you know, number of workers agitating for unionization is not quite the same level um still if you poll americans labor unions are more pop popular now than they have been in more than half a century um depending on how you do these polls I mean, some some studies show that um you know they're given ununionized workers interests in being represented currently unions underrepresent something like 50 million workers what that means is just that that um you know more people are yearning to be represented than are currently are many millions more um uh, but we'll see i mean the you know as i show in the book the stacks are decked pretty pretty un, you know pretty brutally against workers, I think, in terms of workplace organizing and so forth. The Wagner Act was supposed to, again, encourage encourage collective bargaining. And we have a situation in which every obstacle is put up. It's like a sort of gauntlet you have to go through before you can get a union. Uh, didn't used to be that way. Um, so that that's thing. Those are areas where, you know, I'll, I would look to someone like a Vance or a Holly or a, or a Rubio to show leadership and um, you know, do more to try to reform the law or the direction that the law has taken, the distortion of American labor law over the past seven years. Um, they do speak out for individual union actions. I think the next step potentially is to think about a reform of the Wagner Act to make it more of an industry-wide uh, kind of model of organizing rather than shop by shop. The reason a shop by shop is it's it's just a waste of energy. Every time there's a unionization drive, there's like a battle royal at the level of the shop, not the level of the, you know, region or an industry. Whereas like in Europe, 90% of in some places in Europe, 90% of workers are unionized, but that doesn't mean that the individual worker is like at some point went and like joined the picket line, blah, blah, blah. It's much rarer. Um, if you join that industry, you are unionized. Now you may want to take part in the deliberations or whatever you can rise up in your local council or something like that. But uh, I mean, a labor council, but you're not like in the union in the fight. It just is it's there 
once a year, the union, the government, and the and the uh, company meet, and they sort of hash things out about wages, working conditions, etc. And uh, I think that's a much more rational model than the Wagner Act, which is like at the level of an individual Starbucks store, there has to be a fight. Uh, it's pretty tiresome, and 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 a waste of energy, and including a waste of business energy, to be honest. You know how much money is spent every year on anti-union, uh, you know, consultants and so forth. It's millions. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, your your ideal is something more like a a populist compromise that you know the Republican Party makes its peace um, by, in some way, you know, acknowledging the not only the necessity of unions but also the political um, valence of again, in my view, I think you know the political valence of of private sector unions appeals a lot more to um, you know Republicans. Yeah, I think maybe that should be the. I mean, I mean, like if 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 tomorrow there was a Republican Party that broadly is is supportive of of organized labor and the private economy, you know, I think uh, you know that's we could say that's that's where it stops. Like we're not going to be for for public sector unions, or that's a or that's a battle or a debate for another day. I think that would be uh, helpful. I think that and then, and there could be sort of you know, there has to be give and take. I mean, and an element of this, I think, should be restrictions on immigration is what the Democrats have to give. Mm-hmm. As you well know, the idea of unlimited uh, immigration or unrestricted immigration didn't used to be popular among labor unions. It's only recently when they've clung ever more closely to right, the Democratic right. Party that they've adjo- adopted a kind of open borders mindset. Whereas as recently as 2015-16, Senator Bernie Sanders said something like, uh, open borders, that's a Koch brothers idea, right? So that's the more kind of traditional view of the labor left. And so I think that's maybe a grand compromise to be struck is uh, immigration labor like that. And they both were down to the benefit of workers because um, obviously unhindered restriction is pretty bad for workers, especially near the bottom rungs of the labor market. Well, once again, uh, to our listeners, the book is Tyranny, Inc., um, new book by uh, Sorab Amari. Um, we're so grateful, Sorab, to have you on our podcast. We wish you well on uh, a successful book tour. Um, and in general, uh, can't wait for your next book project as well. Um, then we'll hit the trifecta three times on the podcast. Um, yeah, but, I, th- uh, I think I think you'll like this next one, but I, I, I can't talk about I, I don't want to, you know, you, if you talk about some future project, I'm superstitious that you sort yeah. of, uh, it dissipates <laughs> in the talk and then you never get it done, actually. So that's right. It's, it's, only, it's only when you've got that manuscript completed yeah. and that's when it's off. Yes. Uh, that's when you yeah. know. It's truly, it's 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 truly there. Um, no, but I'm I'm really I'm really grateful. This is one of the earliest interviews for this book, so it's like I really appreciate being able to test out my talking points. Thank you, so Rob, um, and uh, thanks. Uh, in uh, you know, we wish you well. Thanks. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.